You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Savage Arms and the new shotgun from Savage, the Renegade. At the core of the Renegade is an industry-first patented dual-valve self-regulating gas system made to cycle higher power loads with the same reliable consistency as lower power target loads, all while cutting down on recoil. Now, this the shotgun is ergonomic. It's well balanced. It has a patented stock pad that knocks down recoil. And definitely check out the information about the the dual valve gas system that uh, allows for this consistency. Right? Uh, there is so many cool, creative things that Savage has done with this shotgun. If you want to learn more about the Renegade, visit SavageArms.com/Renegade. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ohio Huntsman Podcast. And today's episode is a really interesting one. We had Kurt Wagner on from the Division of Wildlife to talk about Ohio's only native inland trout species. So you may not have known, because I didn't prior to this podcast, that Ohio actually has a, a native brook trout species and it's the only native species to Ohio, to the to the inland streams and rivers. And it was actually thought at one point to have been completely extirpated from the state. So this is a really interesting conversation. We talk about the fish itself, the, the type of habitat it, it likes or needs, and some of the efforts that they went through to reestablish this this fish in Ohio and and try to hang on to this little remnant population that that they found. So really interesting conversation and I want to thank Kurt for coming on and taking time to talk to us about this. Before we do that, I want to talk about our sponsor Monster Whitetail Grub. Monster Whitetail Grub is an Ohio deer feed company and I say Ohio deer feed company because they try to source everything from Ohio. So ingredients, packaging, they have flavorings that they add in to turn their their feed kind of into a, a like a long range attractant. So all of that stuff they try to get here locally, which I really like. I really appreciate that because they don't you know they don't have to do that. They they choose to do that. So we've been using the product for a while now and have had really good success. If you know. For whatever reason, you need something that gives you that little extra edge above corn. Monster White Toe Grub is, is what you need for attracting deer, getting them in front of your cameras, getting them in front of your blind, whatever. So if that's something that you want to try or, or maybe try this fall, check them out. You can go to ohiohuntsman.com sponsors and there'll be a link there to get in touch with them and try out some of their stuff. And with that, let's get into the conversation with Kurt. Welcome to the Ohio Huntsman Podcast, where three brothers, Jason, Jacob, and Jeff, discuss all things hunting in Ohio. Our goal is to be your source for accurate and reliable hunting news and conservation issues in the great state of Ohio, as well as some fun and interesting conversations along the way. This is the Ohio Huntsman Podcast. Are you listening? All right, so today on the podcast, we've got 
Kurt Wagner from the ODNR Division of Wildlife, and sort of a, a change for us, we're going to talk fish today. So, you know, listeners, you all know most of our content to this point has been hunting, wild game, uh, you know, deer, turkey, squirrels, that kind of thing. We've, we've recently been, we did an episode on uh, wild edibles, but now we're going to talk fish. So, Kurt is here to help us talk about the brook trout in Ohio and kind of kind of walk us through that story. But uh, before we get into that, Kurt, I, w- I want to thank you first for for taking time to come on and uh, talk to us. And if you could kind of give us a little bit of your background and and what it is you do for the state. Yeah, sure. So my pleasure. Thanks for asking to be on. That's definitely a Exciting and nice to meet you guys. So yeah, I mean, my job, I'm the fish management supervisor for District 3. So the Division of Wildlife is broken up into five districts, District 3 being Northeast Ohio. So I oversee a staff of about a half dozen that work on uh, all kinds of aspects of sport fish and non-game fish management. Um, certainly our bread and butter is indeed the sport fish side of things. Um, but yeah, like you say, we're shifting gears today. Uh, not only from your your wildlife side of things and your consumptive side of things to fish, but to to fish and non-consumptive at that. So talking brook trout. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you know, I we we do everything out of our office from angler access, acquisition, and maintenance, and sampling fish populations, specifying stockings throughout the state, uh, throughout the district, I should say, um, being involved in various research projects. So pretty fun, pretty exciting, and uh, happy to talk fish with you. Awesome. So, like we sort of mentioned at the beginning there, we're going to talk brook trout today. And Jeff kind of brought this topic to me, and I honestly really had no clue. But but he said, you know, I kind of want to do an episode on brook trout in Ohio and the reintroduction efforts. And I said, okay, that that sounds interesting. So, I guess as a way to start, could you kind of run us through a little bit of the history of brook trout in Ohio and, and um, maybe, maybe how we got into this uh, scenario, maybe through the lens of like what brook trout need to survive? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, it's pretty wild. I mean, I think there's a ton of Ohioans who don't realize that we currently have native brook trout and, and and probably plenty that didn't that know you know didn't know we even had them in the first place uh, ages ago, uh, myself included. I mean, when I moved to Ohio, I guess I wasn't aware of the brook trout history either. It's been pretty fascinating to learn and be a part of. Um, you know, I've always thought brook trout, you know, New England and, and the true Appalachia, but um, yeah, I mean, so going back in eight early eighteen hundred writings when you know naturalists started to document what they were seeing in the Western Reserve, you know, the northern part of Ohio is the Western Reserve. And and these naturalists have writings about the speckled trout being abundant in in streams that feed Lake Erie, you know. And so we have this written documentation of of brook trout, you know, it's oftentimes flowery writing with speckled trout being sort of the favorite term in the day. Um, But, you know, even as early as the mid, as far back, I should say, as the mid 1800s, uh, there was some writings about their decreasing numbers and uh, their loss of habitat and really some calls 
calls to action even then 150 plus years ago you know that that restoration efforts were needed um the 1800s uh, was a huge era of deforestation some estimates say that in the by the 1880s about 80 percent so a lot of eights there by the 1880s about 80 percent of ohio's uh, original forest was timbered and cut down and you can imagine in those days they certainly weren't using sort of forestry best management practices like we know about today <laughs> sure you know the landscape was just changing a ton as settlement came in agriculture kind of and drainage of, of you know massive swamps to to for agriculture just all these land use changes um was really hard hard on the landscape in general and on the environment and then you talk about a fish like brook trout which just have um just these immense need for clean and pristine water um and and you know pretty much pretty much wiped them out you go then fast forward to the early 1900s and you know you get into uh, troutman who is one of these sort of famed ohio ichthyologists who wrote the first fishes of ohio in the middle of the 1900s in that first edition of fishes of ohio the discussion of brook trout isn't even where remnant populations are the discussion is purely a discussion about that historical accounts and and then um the write-up is pretty much that not only are the brook trout not present that even the habitats that could sustain brook trout have been you know devastated and and demolished and so you know the middle 1900s it was pretty much thought and assumed that native brook trout were completely extirpated from the state and that was just the way it was i mean it was that was the, the the Bible. The final word on a fish in Ohio was that that fishes of Ohio book, um, and so that was you know that's the history. Uh, we know they were present. We know they were attached to Lake Erie drainages, and that land use decimated them um, until 1972. That's when uh, they were found. So I don't know if you want to touch on if you want to touch any of that other history before we keep charging forward on on where brook trout are now. Well, so when they assumed them gone, you know, that that Fishes of Ohio publication, that was like how what what information, I guess, were they using to come to that conclusion? Just that they hadn't seen any or, or how were they doing population studies back then? That's a great question. So by that time, there was some uh, pretty concerted efforts from Ohio State and some other partners to, to actually do fish inventory. So there were lots of of seining surveys and, you know, various netting surveys throughout the state to really give a true, you know, inventory, if you will, on the occurrences of, of fish. And so, you know, for the available science at the time, they had full data that uh, brook trout weren't present. Now, of course, every single square inch of water in Ohio wasn't able to be sampled, sure. or, you know, a you know, fair amount was and then inferred from there. And so, yeah, they were going off of their own experience, collaborators' experience, and sort of the written history and lack of specimens for quite some time. Okay. So then you said that brings us to 1972, right? Did I get that date right? Yeah, you got that date right. So um, up in Geauga County, uh, around sort of the, the, the uh, Chardon area, um, Dr. Andy White, he was with John Carroll University, uh, was just doing some routine stream work. Um, as an aside, it's interesting, even one of the collaborators I work with now at the Geauga Park District uh, was a student of Andy White. So, I mean, this history isn't that far back, if you really sort of think about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, early 70s, Andy White was doing some work, 
up around Bass Lake, if you're familiar with that area, just outside of Chardon, and, and came across Brook Trout. Um, kind of kept to himself and some colleagues for a little bit of time, kind of like, oh, it's interesting. But but we know that throughout the whole 1900s and even earlier than that, stocking still occurred. So, you know, when we talk about the Fishes of Ohio book and that there's no brook trout, I, I should preface that or I should, you know, clarify that and say that's no native brook trout. Um, certainly stockings were occurring by, you know, okay. fishing game clubs and, you know, all kinds of entities that still wanted trout to fish for in streams. And, and folks knew that there's records of stockings. That's that's, you know, expected. But the native brook trout is what Troutman said didn't exist anymore. So, you know, Dr. Andy White's like, huh, you know, it's interesting. There's brook trout here, and this sure is in the same drainages as some of those early, even 1800s writings. They talked about, you know, headwaters of the, the chagrin. That came up a lot in those old 1800 writings about sort of the epicenter of lots of wild native brook trout or speckled trout. And so it was interesting the location of where Dr. Andy White found them. And also sort of interesting that he wasn't aware of any stockings that made sense to occur in this tiny little headwater stream that he was working in. Um, so it sort of peaked interest. And, you know, as seventies turned into eighties, genetics techniques became more and more accessible to sort of the average, you know, scientist. And, you know, really, so it's through the eighties into the very early nineties that, you know, a series of different genetic tests were done on these fish as the genetics went from coarse to much more refined. And it's those, test this sort of uh, you know, finalized and landed on the conclusion that indeed these were um, unique strains, unique genetic strains of trout. Um, you know, the, the genetics suggested that they were, had a fingerprint much different than any of the known sort of stocked strains of fish that were being used throughout the, the Eastern United States. Um, the genetic fingerprint of the fish that Dr. White found were most similar to fish in sort of western Pennsylvania, western New York. So, you know, a, a nearby neighbor had the most, you know, similar fingerprint. And just sort of the, the genetic variability and components all pointed to, to wild rather than hatchery fish. Um, so that was really the, the conclusion then that, okay, these fish here are indeed remnants of the native um, Ohio brook trout. And it was interesting that although they didn't match any of the stocked strains you know and their closest similar neighbor was a western pa type genetic fingerprint they were still quite unique even from that so it also sort of hinted at a fair amount of time of, of genetic uh, diversions and separation you know so essentially i mean these fish were just spatially isolated in their little patch reproducing for generations upon generations and sort of developing their own sort of genetic fingerprint if you will was able to sort of tell us that, hey, we are wild, we are native, we're kind of a unique entity from our eastern counterparts, but we're certainly not a hatchery strain. Uh, and that was, really, you know, that was really interesting. That finding was like, whoa, you know, we should do something here to try to protect these guys. Yeah, that like, right. I'm, I'm, uh, I guess what I wanted to say was I'm glad we're having you on because as you're telling me this story, it's like, man, I had no, like, it, this is such a cool story that I had no idea about. So I'm glad we're, I'm glad we're doing this. Jeff, are you going to yeah. say something? Yeah. I just kind of wanted to go into what, what kind of habitat are we talking about for these brook trout? You know, give us a, like a mental picture of what kind of streams is 
good habitat for brook trout, you know, rough size and uh, water clarity, shade, that kind of stuff? Yeah, great question. So, and I was just, yeah, I was just about to think, and I should say that even before you asked, I mean, the, the, the scale, you know, you tell the story and you just think about it, sort of this place in Ohio, it's hard to picture. I mean, we were talking a stream, like the stream that Andy White was working in, we were talking a stream that like my 11 year old could jump across at most spots pretty easily. Oh, wow. I mean, a, a narrow little stream where a deep pool might be two feet and your average depth might be eight, nine inches. Um, meandering and forested completely forested you know nice clean uh gravel and rock um sort of in that air that area of of geauga county that's sort of the sharon sandstone conglomerate so i mean at the beginning of of these streams and this stream in particular you know you can walk them up to they come out of rock like there's the beginning of the stream spring fed constant cold temperature um yeah, I mean that's kind of the the, the make the makeup of these streams. No other fish species. I mean that's that's a key component we're seeing is you know they're not even warm enough to have your your daces or your chubs or anything. I mean they are they are invertebrate insects and maybe some salamanders and these brook trout. Um, and you know in the summer they're staying cold. In the winter they might have margin ice, but they're staying flowing and open again because of the spring fed aspect of things. Um, very low siltation, you know, the ability to make those reds, their little, their little uh, fish spawning beds, if you will. So that, that's kind of what these look in the length. I mean, um, eight, 900 meters long total. I mean, that's small. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it, a, a very right. unique set of, uh, parameters, if you will, that, uh, you know, I'm not that I've been in every stream in Ohio, but you know, that you don't, you don't see or you don't find that much anymore in Ohio, right? You're right. You don't. I mean, when I get, you know, to, to this stream in particular, and then, you know, we'll get to, we'll get to talking about the reintroduction projects and some of the other streams that, you know, we, we put them in that we presume had them originally based on sort of the, the historic narrative. Um, yeah. When you get to some of these, sometimes you you stand there and you're like, I cannot believe I'm 30 miles from downtown Cleveland. I mean, just little pockets of really about as pristine Ohio as you can get, certainly in Northeast Ohio. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so we discover that these are in fact a, a native species of Ohio brook trout and they are, it, it sounds like they're genetically different from the, the stocked species and even the closest relatives in neighboring states is there any i guess one thing that popped into my head and maybe this is getting getting ahead in the conversation but is there any like concern of crossbreeding or contaminating if you will this native species with farm raised you know stocked fish yeah there is i mean the reality of it is where these native fish historically lived and, and now live they're not really even streams that anybody in their right mind would think to to be then stocking what you and i would think of sort of the recreational you know let's go fish for brook trout type of fishery um so and then also we have our pulse on it. i mean the, to release any 
wild animal into a water of the state, you have to get permission from the Division of Wildlife to stock. And so we certainly aren't going to let stockings occur on top of um, native brook trout. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like you said, we're, maybe we're getting ahead, but that's okay. We can kind of wander. I mean, a couple of the streams we did try for the reintroduction project were in through like the Hold'em, Ar- Hold'em Arboretum, um, which which was what the east branch headwaters of the east branch of the chagrin and habitat you know parameters that made sense but what we found actually is that you know the stream conditions across the whole watershed were improving so much that we we're actually having steelhead come all the way up uninhabited into even these little headwater areas that we tried on a couple of the creeks there in, in holden and and spawning so when we go back we saw these little trout you know when we're doing our electrofishing we're like oh man then you net them and you're like ah they're all rainbows you know they're two three inch rainbows not brooks and so i mean you talk about non-native aspect or stocked aspect i mean there was a situation where probably along with maybe some other parameters but certainly just some of the spawn of steelhead for example i'm sure out competed um the the brook trout and so uh you know but most of the places we did on the reintroduction project were so far upstream, either non-natives weren't going to get to them or there would be some, some migration barriers, low head dams, et cetera, that would prevent that from happening and a number of other sort of isolated mechanisms. And then certainly we wouldn't just allow stockings in those headwaters either. Okay. So, so that, go ahead, Jake. You were now, uh, I was going to, now brook trout, um, are they Ohio's only native? inland trout species or was there others that have completely been wiped out yeah great question so yes only native trout species um they're actually a char uh they're most similar to lake trout so i I guess depending how you want to look at ohio we do know that lake trout are native to the great lakes to lake erie so from an ohio standpoint i guess you could say that brook trout and lake trout were, were native as far as inland streams like we would think of um, as far as trout in this context, uh, yes, absolutely. The only native trout, you know, the other stream trouts that we think of true trouts, the brown trout and the uh, rainbow trout, they're actually completely non-native, uh, you know, rainbow trout from the Western U.S., uh, brown trout from Europe, Germany and that area. So, so really the brook trout, as far as sort of your typical inland, what an angler thinks of as trout in the U.S., uh, the brook trout for sure, the only native inland stream trout. Uh, in the eastern United States and specifically in Ohio. So, can you, uh, I guess, for me, the the, un, the uneducated, I guess, on on fish, you, you mentioned steelhead coming up the rivers to spawn and and um, you know out competing. Can you kind of run us through the life cycle of a brook trout? Are they, you know, are, are they moving through the stream to spawn, or are they kind of do they live and die in a section of of stream if you will yeah the latter certainly anyways in the headwater eastern u.s type context um i mean brook trout are pretty interesting in that if you really start diving into brook trout across the whole north american range you get sort of these variable life histories and you get up into canada and coasters you get all these sort of subspecies of brook trout that are doing some pretty wild migrations and some that live in lakes up in um maine and canada um, but when you start talking sort of the, the eastern U.S. brook trout that kind of runs up and down the Appalachian Mountains, sort of the context that we're talking in here, um, there may be some, and there are some, I mean, it's documented in the literature, there are some 
very localized kind of migrations, maybe from a pool or riffle for the right spawning habitat. We're not talking anything like a steelhead run or something like that. So, I mean, these fish are in a thousand meter section of stream. These fish are, are very capable of pulling off their life cycle, their life history, um, just from sort of, you know, pool residency and then moving in to create the, the reds and shallow water and gravel for spawning. And then, you know, the, the eggs incubate and hatch kind of in that little gravelly space and absorb their yolk sac as they grow and then they start to feed. So yeah, that, you know, you might pull off a full generation of an individual in let's say, you know, 15, 20, 30 meters a stream if it had that right riffle run pool habitat. Okay. Have you ever used or or wanted to use a a cover scent or some sort of attractant scent? If you have, then I'd encourage you to check out Mastin's Deer Sense. Mastin's has your standard liquid scents, and they're a really high-quality scent. They collect everything on stainless steel, which keeps everything pure. So you're getting good, pure scent with no contamination, you know, that can come from collecting off of concrete. And they've got a lot of interesting ways to use that scent. So you can just use the scented liquid. They've got scented gel crystals. They've got scented candles, like deer-scented candles. They've got their double scent stacker, which allows you to layer two scents at once. So a lot of interesting and fun things. So check them out, mastinsdeerscents.com, or go to ohiohuntsman.com sponsors, and that's where all of our, our information on our sponsors is. Now, back to the conversation. So... I guess that leads us into the reintroduction process, right? So we, we discovered that uh, we've got this remnant distinct population and we need to do something about this to, you know, try to bring, save this species, bring this species back. So could you kind of talk us through how that process worked? What, what all went into that? Absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. It's, it's quite an example of a partnership. I mean, I, I, I didn't come to Ohio until, until 2008. So, you know, this is all happening in the 90s. So, you know, I just got to sort of learn about it and then pick it up and run with it from, from there. But yeah, throughout the 90s, so folks from the Division of Wildlife and a bunch of partners, Trout Unlimited, Ohio EPA, um, Cleveland Metro Parks, Geauga, Metro, or Geauga Park District, I should say, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, what has become the Western Reserve Land Conservancy, this whole group of partners basically came together and, you know, we need to do something about this and we're going to be able to do it in a partner context. And so uh, a group called the Brook Trout Advisory Committee was formed. We worked uh, to list brook trout as a species of concern, so actual state listing, which provides some protections on, on the species. And then the committee sort of took off and sort of ran with, okay, what do we need to do? And so, you know, the reintroducing them to other similar streams you know seemed like the most logical approach if you were going to try to protect and perpetuate the, the native strain of brook trout in ohio so it sort of you know really involves sort of four components this reintroduction project first is sort of a stream survey stream inventory phase where you really go out and say okay what are candidate streams we could even consider and about 200 streams were, were surveyed and looking for the things I talked about earlier, so cold water, spring fed, the right sort of geologic underpinnings, uh, silt free, 
low erosion, in-stream cover, stable water flow and temperature, all these things. And even of the 200 streams that sort of all the partners at the table sort of knew of professionally or, you know, dug into gazetteers and kind of figured out, even there, only 15 were actually determined to be, okay, we think these streams here have the best and the most suitable components for brook trout. So it's kind of wild to think about even in the 90s that a group of professionals all together that identified 200 streams that were even worth discussing, because, I mean, clearly there was thousands that nobody even needed to discuss. We knew they weren't good yeah. enough. So you get 200 streams that you want that you talk about, and then you still whittle it down to 15 that you think are the best of the best. You know, it just sort of goes to show you how pristine and cl- quality of a habitat these critters need. Yeah. And so identify these 15 streams. Okay, now I got to develop, you know, a brood source. So, you know, fish were taken into the Castalia State Fish Hatchery and the Division of Wildlife, you know, established a, a, a brood population, a subset of the fish found in Springbrook in Geauga County and use those to create fertilized eggs for the hatchery program and then stocking those out. So stocking has actually occurred from the years of 96 to 2003. And in total, it's really not a large number. In total, about 78,000 fry were stocked into those 15 streams in, in total. Um, we're talking 40 millimeters in length, you know, so it's quite small, uh, stocked in April. And any one of those candidates got like three consecutive years of stocking. So not every stream was stocked in that 96 to 03 range, but in that range, all 15 of those candidate streams got three, sort of three full consecutive years of stockings, sort of an effort. Okay, this is our best foot forward. Let's see if the stream can sort of take off and run with it with these, you know, three pulses of fish each year. And then phase of that whole project was then going in and, you know, okay, did they take? And so, you know, from 2003 really to sort of 2006-ish, crews did survey work in these streams, mainly with seine nets, just to go in and, and basically, okay, are we getting age zero fish that's going to, you know, that's going to indicate natural reproduction. Are we getting multiple age classes of fish, which indicate that multiple prior years survived, you know, and what are our densities? Are they high, low, medium densities of fish? And essentially sort of scoring or ranking those, those streams as successful, variable, or failed. They sort of decided to go on sort of a uh, qualitative categorization, categorization. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, you can edit that one uh, to see how those streams landed. So that's kind of how the project ended. It was these three categories of of was it successful or not. Okay. And so when when what year did this start? The sampling of the whole project. Uh, I guess yeah. When when did the the stream sampling start? Yeah, so the stream sampling started right about the end of the stocking, so like 0203, and it went through uh, 2006, I believe. Okay. And so it's just on the heels of the stockings. And, and I think the date on the final report was a 07 date that sort of came out and sort of buttoned it up and said, here's where we're at. Um, okay. So, and then, so out of that project of those 15 streams, there was six 
but, but one of those was the, the initial stream that the fish were found in in the first place. So I guess you could say there was there was five of the 15 candidate streams that came out as, you know, highly successful. So consistent year classes of self-reproducing fish after those, you know, three seed years of stockings. And then there was another five that were categorized as variable. And so variable would mean, you know, when the, the, the years they sampled, some years they found strong year classes, some years they didn't, but they still had multiple age classes of trout in the system showing survival. And then there was five streams that were complete fails. So, you know, no fish or hardly any fish, you know, no indications of natural reproduction, maybe just a couple of old individuals that survived from a stocking. Okay. Um, considered failed. So that was that was sort of how the project ended is, okay, we had these 15 streams that we thought were the best of the best. And five of them, are, it's really working well. Plus there's a sixth stream that was that initial where Dr. White found them in the first place. And you had five more variable. And so 11 streams housing for trout in 2007. Were these streams all located on like parkland or public land or was there issues with like getting access to private land for some of these streams or like how did that work out it's variable certainly where uh publicly protected land was available those streams were considered if they had the right ingredients you know so park districts and like i said holden arboretum was another one that i mentioned earlier uh, but there were certainly some private properties that you know had estates that the stream just, you know, had all the right ingredients and, you know, our biologists formed relationships with those landowners and kind of explained the project and, and got pretty good buy-in, uh, certainly from some of these private landowner partners. So it was variable during the project. It really was about the stream ingredients. And then they sort of dug in and said, okay, who owns this and how do we work with whoever owns it? Right. Now at this stage, if one of those successful streams was on you know, someone's private property, their estate. Um, are there, I'm assuming there's limitations and what they can and can't do around that stream. Well, no, so we didn't, I mean, we tried to obviously talk to them and educate them about the conservation of the species, but we didn't get in, in, into any, you know, legally standing restrictions on their land use or, you know, actions on their property other than what just general state law would say you can or can't do around a, a state stream anyways. So, it, no, it didn't bind them to anything more strict. Uh, but the partners that we ended up, you know, finding the streams and talking with, for, you know, for the most part, were extremely bought into the conservation story and were excited about it and, and really sort of almost adopted it as their own and, and, you know, worked really hard to not do things on their landscape that, that would affect the fish. Um, you know, you have a situation where maybe you had the one landowner that might, let's say, might own 80 percent of the stream, but there's still a little bit of, you know, upstream influence from other properties. And, and we saw situations where, you know, maybe somebody built a pond way upstream that then flowed into the brook trout stream and caused temperatures to rise or something that was, would be out of the control of that original landowner that we approached for stocking. Um, so it does, you know, that's a lot to say, but it does complicate. I mean, that's one of the lessons of this project we learned is it was it's certainly much easier to try to maintain a species when you're on one parcel with one ownership in like a, a metro park type setting where you can truly can control the landscape to the best of your ability um, it is tougher 
when you're working on sort of multiple parcels and multiple land uses upstream that you have no control over. Sure. So you, you, I guess then we, you identify these species by putting fish in the streams and see how they survive. Is there then, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, is there then a, you know, you've identified these five plus the one that was originally there. Is there in an attempt past that then to, um, you know, boost those populations or, or how did that play out? Well, that's where we're at now. So yeah, you know, that report came out in 2007. Okay. We have these 11 streams that are either successful or variable. And, you know, there, I think there really was sort of a collective, like, sigh like all right we did it we did the project and there was sort of a lull frankly and then like i said i hired came into ohio got hired on in 2008 and one of the sort of the first tasks that my supervisor uh sort of put on my plate was like hey why don't you sort of look at the brook trout situation get acquainted with acquainted with all the partners at the table and see about maybe developing a monitoring program you know not not anything as tense as the reintroduction but we should keep eyes on how these fish do and so from 2009 through current, uh, we've been doing periodic sampling on these streams and, and sort of quantifying how they're doing and tracking that over time. And then that's proven to be pretty interesting. And, and really, I mean, I guess to cut right to the chase, the five streams that were in that variable category have, have fallen off and, and, you know, they the variableness of those streams really wasn't able to stand the longer test of time and, and retain populations. And so now we're sort of in that top tier of those, those streams that came out of the project as successful. And even within them, we're, we're seeing a situation where one that was on private property where we didn't have sort of full watershed control, if you will, has dropped off. And we really are now at sort of four strong populations on you know, publicly protected Metro Park type properties um, that are still sort of holding on and thriving. And so that monitoring has been fruitful in that we didn't just sit on our laurels and, you know, they all sort of died out from under us and surprised us. Now, the, the tough part and kind of where we're at right now is, okay, we've done a good job at documenting the decline and documenting how those streams or populations kind of on the margins weren't able to sort of stand the test of like, you know, extreme weather events or other environmental stressors and, and sort of cropped off. Now, what do we do about, you know, sort of our four strong streams? I mean, do we try to bolster it again? Do you do reintroduction part two? You know, how do you go about making sure the species stays in existence in Ohio? Um, and, and really that's kind of right where we're at right now. In fact, we, we recently reconvened the Brook Trout Committee because that committee sort of sort of uh, faded out, didn't really have as much of a purpose when we were in the monitoring phase as as that committee had when we were in the actual reintroduction project. So we sort of brought back some partners together. And, you know, I don't think, you know, you should learn from the past, right? So I don't think we just, okay, take fish in, make a whole bunch of fish babies, put them back out again. <laughs> I mean, there may be a part of that, but I think, you know, now we're thinking through things about, okay, what, land protections, what, you know, in-stream work can we do, certainly to try to bolster and protect those four populations as best we can. And then if there is another population or another stream, I should say, that that comes to our attention, 
maybe you do a very strategic transplant, but not necessarily just a shotgunning of fish out into a whole bunch of Canada streams again. So I think it's going to be multifaceted. It's going to be habitat work in the existing population streams and then maybe upstream watershed protections. Um, We even saw one stream that clearly got decimated because of some heavy rain events a few years ago. But when we went and looked, what we really noticed is that the surrounding forested landscape was like a concrete sidewalk. And when we started digging around and looking, it was just just littered with the uh, invasive Asian earthworm. That oh. That's a whole other topic you could spend an hour on. But basically, these guys just consume all the duff layer of the forest floor and compact it with their excrement. And what you do is you create a forest landscape that instead of having that sort of absorptive quality that a forest should for rain events, you basically have the same ecological effect as an impervious parking lot surface. And so when we had unprecedented rains up in, I think, Bainbridge Township, the surrounding watershed couldn't absorb some of that energy. Instead, it just sheeted down and completely blew out the whole stream. I mean, we went from solid brook trout to zero brook trout um just decimated them wow and so you know some are realizing that it might it's not just as simple as just stock out more fish I and mean, we have some of these ecological impacts that are occurring even up in the riparian zone that need attention and, and some focus on and then you have aspects of i mean we are getting more and more intense rain events as we are seeing sort of aspects of you know whether you want to call it climate change or whatever you want to call it, our weather patterns have shifted recently and especially notable in our rainfall patterns. And so heavy rainfalls and, and impacted riparian area don't really speak well for headwater streams. So there's, there's aspects there that need to be considered, not just, you know, in the moment, does a stream look good to put brook trout in? Sure. So uh, I guess that presents a question of what does, success in this look like because right i mean we're we're never going to you know never say never but the odds of re-establishing native ohio brook trout in all of their native streams is probably very close to zero but uh, how are you guys going to define success how do you guys know when uh yep we did it we you know we can check the box. Yeah, we spent a lot of time talking about that, and it's been pretty interesting conversation because there isn't just a, a, a right and a wrong answer. Uh, even in, in the era of the reintroduction project in you know the late '90s, early 2000s, success never was defined at you know such a population boom that we now had fishable populations. So from the get-go, it was it was purely a you know, almost more of a preservationist type activity than it was a conservationist activity. Because when we think of the word conservation, we think of utilizing a resource and all that sort of Teddy Roosevelt type stuff. Sure. There was never a thought that we we're going to fish for, angle for these fish. Um, you know, it was, can we establish these strong enough that we don't lose this really cool, interesting part of Ohio's natural history? I mean, that was success. Can, can we keep this from going extirpated? And in that, measure the project was successful and now you get to the point where okay what looked like 11 good populations which i think all the partners were fine to like 
just have. If we still had 11, we'd still be like, yeah, that's cool. They're there. And so now when it's dwindling, 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 you sort of have to re-ask yourself, does this matter? Is it even worth the effort? If we did anything, what is success again? I mean, I've been around the table where I've just frankly said, I mean, partly for discussion purposes, not that I necessarily believe it personally, but I've just said, hey, do we do we even keep spending time and money on this? Like, is it an is it an inevitability that Brook Trout are not going to survive in Northeast Ohio? You know, do we just chase another project? And, and you know, like I said, it was mainly a discussion starter. Like, let's get us, get us thinking about this because we always have to do think about like, are we being responsible with with resources, Ohio's sure. resources? And, and you know, the resounding, and that's also why we have partners at the table. It isn't like the division of wildlife itself is dumping zillions of dollars into this. Kind of have a bunch of partners at the table and. And some of the partners at the table were like, hey, you know, one one after the other around the table, hey, part of our agency's mission statement is, you know, protecting the rarest of like habitats and species. And then the next person would say, yeah, is, you know, highlighting and educating on the unique aspects of Ohio. And around and around you go and you realize that, I mean, there is this intrinsic value that really society has in just knowing that some of our historical, cool, pristine, native plants and animals still exist and so you know we kind of all were like okay what we don't want to happen is just give up and be like yeah whatever let it let it happen let it run its course so now the question is okay how do we responsibly still put funds at this if we all sort of say we don't want to just see the species just simply go extirpated from ohio um and and then so what success looks like now it's still kind of undefined like we, we are actually right now in the process of 2020 sort of writing a species management plan for ohio because we could quickly realize to you know to to grab those private sector grants and some of these other monies that are out there that aren't just straight up like a sportsman's dollar type of monies you know these granting agencies want to see a, a species conservation plan like what is your action plans what is your path forward you know what is your documented science that you're going to do so we're kind of in that phase right now sort of wrapping our head around it and saying okay it's more than just having a a table conversation about what we want. We need to sort of document this in writing so we can secure funding and, and move strategic pieces forward. So I'd say we're still in the process of defining what the next 10 years of the success looks like. I can say it at least is defined by they didn't go extirpated. Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah. Right. We don't really have the other measurables measurables beyond that, except everybody agrees we still need to put some effort and sort of brain matter into not just letting these fish sort of succumb to environmental stressors in Ohio. I got a question during the reintroduction. Did you guys, or maybe there's no way to really tell because you pulled original population, but did you ever find any other native populations to what you could tell when you were doing your surveying or was it just in that one stream when you guys kind of found it, so to speak, when they were found where they only have, is it accepted they were just in that one stream or could there have been some in these other what you're deeming successful habitats? Yeah, so they were they were quickly found in a neighboring stream like a quarter mile away. But then almost immediately within a couple of years after that, that stream had, you know, some upstream stressors that that wiped brook trout out of there. So really that stream quickly went to being one of the reintroduction Canada streams after some environmental work was put on that stream to, to rehabilitate the habitat. Um, but yeah, quickly after Dr. White found those in Springbrook, he found them just adjacent in Woody Brook. 
but Woody Brook then has some upstream housing development that, that sort of wiped them out until some work was done. Um, so, but then in all the other 199 other Canada streams that, you know, partners went far and wide to examine, no, no other brook trout were find in, found in any of those places that seemed to have the right measurables, you know, upstream, headwater, geology, Lake Erie drainage, et cetera, et cetera, that lined up with the historical reports and, and descriptions of, of where they were. So I think we, we very comfortably say that we identified the only two remaining populations. Now, you can never say that with 100% certainty because right. Troutman, thought, Troutman thought they were gone too. But right. with the amount of survey work that's been put on the landscape in the last 50, 60 years with EPA and everybody playing at the table, I can't imagine there's any other pockets of native brook trout. I think pretty much every stream has been looked at in some aspect since then. So I guess how close would you estimate they were to being completely extirpated before they were rediscovered? That's a, that's a great question because obviously there wasn't any real conservation efforts uh, being pushed towards them when they were just found in 72 and the population was really strong and stable. It wasn't like there was just a few. Um, so it's, I mean, it's hard to tell how long, you know, that stream just had the perfect ingredients and apparently didn't have the stressors to result in, in you know, fish getting wiped out of that stream. I, maybe they'd still be in that one stream today. I, you know, it, it, it's really hard to tell on that one. I mean, I think all of us were just sort of collectively amazed that even they were there in the first place. Um, the stream flows into Bass Lake. So, I mean, you, you have the ability of some warm water lake species to swim up. And there was a culvert pipe that I think prevented further upstream migration. And that was probably a saving grace to the brook trout completely accidentally. Um, the stream even had a water diversion to feed this sort of lagoon that was used for community boating in the 50s and 60s. And so it had these ingredients that you would look at and say, well, this stream's impacted too, but it was holding a robust population of brook trout. Just incredible. Hmm. Yeah. So um, because the population was so limited to this one population, is there concerns about a bottleneck effect? So absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, a good genetics question, you know, the, the small spawner number bottleneck effect. And there were, and it really came down to a sort of trade-off of we do nothing, but they're already still bottlenecked. It's just one population. Or we just accept the fact that, you know, there could be some, you know, deleterious mutations and other things that happen if we bring a, a subset of spawners into a hatchery and make a whole bunch of siblings out of them and put them back out and you know the way the folks landed in the 90s was you know what there's we'd rather have a, a chance of, of some genetic sort of stifling but still have the unique brook trout in more places than to sort of just know we have this one stream which is probably also going through its own bottleneck effect anyways um you know that that's really a debate that i think you could argue pros and cons either way on that one as far as sort of how you deal with a conservation question when you're at such small numbers. It's the kind of questions right. that 
well, in Africa and Asia are talking about with, you know, tigers and crazy stuff. And it's the same type of question for, you know, a stream of brook trout in Ohio in the 90s. Okay. So let's say somebody listens to this and, and they feel called to action. Is there is there anything that uh, an individual can do to kind of help uh, preserve this this species? Well, so right now, I would say just simply talking about it, just the awareness of a cool native species in Ohio that, you know, isn't able to be as flaunted, let's say, as the bald eagle or some other, you know, uh, super charismatic animal you get pictures of. So I'd say just talking to their friends that, hey, did you know this actually exists? And it's kind of a cool thing in Northeast Ohio. Um, Another aspect would be, you know, right now, some of the most integrated partners wanting to put funds towards restoration are the various trout clubs, you know, so the various trout unlimited and fly clubs throughout Northeast Ohio. Um, and we're just a little bit, you know, we keep kind of thanking the groups for their interest and their willingness, but we really kind of do want to have a, a plan in place and then say, okay, this would be the best use of funds for step one. And this then would be the best use of funds for step two, rather than just sort of piecemealing funds here and there without, sort of just taking a step back and going, okay, we need to really document what this plan needs to be and not just sort of try things. Um, So right now, exactly right now, no, there isn't much else to do other than sort of awareness, discussion about this is a cool conservation story, certainly supporting your conservation clubs, um, and then sort of being in the wing for when, you know, I think there will be a time we're reaching out to the, the Trout Unlimiteds and the Cleveland Trout Clubs, et cetera, you know, hey, you know, we have this project, this is a document, this plan that we need funds for. You're interested in, you know, sponsoring or granting. And, um, you know, that's where I think dollars would actually be talked about. But right now we don't have sort of any kind of in-kind or volunteer component to this. Okay. So is there is there anything that you wish we would have asked you or, or anything that we should have asked you um with regards to brook trout in Ohio? Hmm. I, you know, I don't think so. Uh, you guys really covered it well. It was, it was a good discussion. Uh, you know, I think, I, I guess I mentioned it already. I just, I definitely want your listeners to know that, you know, this isn't an end goal of, of fish to angle for. And I, I know we've had some really well-meaning, you know, hardcore fly anglers that have come to me in the past and been like, Oh, you know, I just want to catch, one Ohio brook trout before I die, you know, where can I go? <laughs> I release it. I'm the, you know, I'm the best releaser ever, et cetera. And, you know, it's like, please, please, please don't fish for these fish. Um, you know, they're even, you know, one delayed mortality from hooking would be a bummer to us. Yeah. Uh, if you want to catch brook trout, just go to Pennsylvania or West Virginia and catch a brook trout. Um, so I guess, you know, just reiterating the fact that, you know, as much as we all love to fish who do this work, um, that really this is kind of one of those projects that is just truly a uh, preserve a cool native heritage kind of thing rather than, you know, a steelhead to catch or something like that. So it's, 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 that's the difference. You know, I think the people, folks oftentimes think of division wildlife as, you know, we're solely into sort of the hook and bullet type projects. And this is one of those ones where, you know, it's a, it's a non-game and just let's protect the species because yeah. it is a cog, it's a cog in the machine of Ohio's native wildlife. 
Yeah, and I'm I'm I was glad to hear that uh, you know when you posed the question of should we even continue to you know spend time and money on this that you know people the the people at the table said yes we should because you know as you were saying that I was like yes yes I hope they said yes <laughs> so I, I was glad to hear that and because I you know I definitely fall on that side of the uh, discussion of like you know if we can save it we should try to save it and so I, I like hearing that and I like hearing the story you know I mean we're, we're talking about a fish that was rediscovered in Ohio right around the time when the Cuyahoga River caught on fire you know I mean and, and to, to, yeah. to know that we're still talking about it uh, today is, is just an awesome story so yeah absolutely all right well, Jake, Jeff, do, do you guys have anything else you want to ask Kurt before we let him go? No, I'm good. It was good, fun discussion. Yeah, right. I'm I'm good. That, there was a lot of great information in there. And, you know, this is a topic that I was interested in and I couldn't find a whole lot of literature on. So that's why I really wanted to try to find someone to talk to and yeah, I think this is going to be really interesting to our listeners. Well, and Thanks. intriguing to me and, and maybe me alone is I've got, you know, a potential topic on invasive Asian earthworms uh, because uh, I don't think we've talked about this on the podcast, but I had a um, a worm composting system set up at my house at one point. And so, I, I you know, worms kind of weirdly uh, hold a special place of interest to me. So I'm kind of intrigued by that topic, maybe a, maybe for a future podcast. So, All right, Kurt. Well, again, I want to thank you for uh, taking time. I, I always appreciate uh, you guys coming on. I, you know, we do these in the evening, and I, I know that's typically outside of your, your normal uh, office hours, if you will. So I, I do appreciate that. And... Maybe we'll have you back on to do uh, some more fish topics, some other fish species or something. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. All right. Well, thanks, and we will uh, talk to you later. All right. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. So that's going to do it for this week. Like I said at the beginning, really interesting conversation. I really enjoyed talking to Kurt. Hopefully you all learned something. And like Kurt mentioned tell people about this fish it's it's not a fish that that we can fish for but it's just in my opinion it's just really good to know that it's there that we're working to preserve it to keep it around and that we've got such a cool story within the borders of our state a conservation story that uh i don't think really got told and so so tell people about this tell the story of the native ohio brook trout with that as always continue to listen subscribe share the episode share our content with people that's the best thing you can do for us make sure you're subscribed that way you automatically get notified and you never miss an episode and with that i want to thank everybody for listening If you want more content, you can check us out on Facebook, 
we're we're Ohio Huntsman on Facebook or on Instagram. We're Ohio Huntsman underscore podcast on Instagram. And we're always posting interesting news, tidbits, what we're doing in the woods, that kind of thing. So with that, I'll let you all get back to your day and talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.